0: Greetings, fellow travelers through the liturgical year. This is Lisa Davis with a Feast Day Quick Take on the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. And I'd like to begin by wishing our friend, Sister Paulina Marie, CMD, and our eldest son, Paul, each a Blessed Name Day. Today is one of several feasts that honor St. Paul. The dedicated Feast of St. Paul the Apostle, who he was and what he became for the Church, falls on June 30th immediately following the feasts of Saints Peter and Paul as a duo on June 29th. I guess you would think of June 30th as the official feast day in a conventional way. The rest of his feast days have interesting twists. On February 10th, the island nation of Malta celebrates St. Paul in a unique local feast, not on the Universal Church calendar, but a fascinating one. It's called the Feast of St. Paul's Shipwreck. You might remember something about St. Paul being in a shipwreck from his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 25, the one we read in the Epistle on Sexagesima Sunday. If you recall, he actually mentions three shipwrecks, but the feast in February commemorates the miraculous survival of St. Paul when his ship went down off the coast of Malta, which incidentally is located in the Mediterranean Sea south of Italy. Every February to this day, the locals of Valletta, the island's capital, celebrate St. Paul's washing safely ashore on their beach with special ceremonies and festivals. On November 18th, the Church presents to us the unity of the natural life of the faith with the supernatural on the feast of the dedication of the basilicas of St. Peter and Paul. What better way of honoring these two most holy and important saints of the Church while at the same time? commemorating the holy places in which we honor them with the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And on today's feast, we remember a particularly important event in the life of the Church. The day God knocked St. Paul off his horse, and then what happened after that. But let's backtrack. St. Paul was born at Tarsus, the capital of Cilicia, which was and is still located in south-central Turkey. Named Saul originally, he was born to parents who were Roman citizens, most likely because they lived in one of the cities which was specifically Roman. Though he was a Roman citizen, Saul had been raised in the Jewish religion, and instructed in the strict observance of the Mosaic law from his earliest days. By every indication he was scrupulous in his religious discipline, and truly zealous for his faith, so much so that the appearance of the upstart Christian sect in Israel was an affront to him, and the eradication of the faction became a personal mission. Not only did he feel perfectly righteous in the persecution of the Christians, but he didn't for a moment flinch at the notion of their eradication by bloodshed. With the Pharisees, Saul was in complete accord. A lesson needed to be taught to the Christians. When the fanatic Stephen dared speak back to the Pharisees, trying him for blasphemy, it was instinctual, they all knew it. The law of Moses clearly exacted the death penalty. As a Roman citizen, Saul need not be bloodied himself in the stoning, but he was proud to take part by holding the coats of those more appropriate to the task. They had his full approval, and then some. According to Albin Butler's account, Saul was conspicuous as a persecutor of the Christians. Quote, By virtue of the power he had received from the high priest, he dragged the Christians out of their houses, loaded them with chains, and thrust them into prison. In the fury of his zeal, he applied for a commission to take up all Jews at Damascus who confessed Jesus Christ, and bring them bound to Jerusalem, that they might serve as examples for others. There was to be no mercy. Nevertheless, it was on the road to Damascus that God showed Saul his patience and mercy by throwing him off his horse and blinding him. Isn't this the way of it sometimes? The most unexpected and painful circumstance can turn out to be just the cross that leads to our salvation. No accident, but God's doing. Sometimes it takes a pretty hard smack to wake us up. And remember how hardened Paul had become. He was pretty arrogantly convinced that he was the good guy in all of this, and that his was the truly godly cause. So God's providence had to be a pretty hard smack. Paul at this time was cheek and jaw with the ecclesiastics of the Temple in Jerusalem. So it was from Jerusalem that he took the so-called Northern Road, bound for Damascus, with a handful of colleagues. Imagine their astonishment when, suddenly, the men and horses were surrounded by a magnificent light, bright enough that it eclipsed the sun. It would have come out of nowhere. Saul wouldn't have had a split second to absorb what had happened before he found himself struck violently, thrown down on the rocky ground, and in danger of being trampled by his rearing and stamping horse. Imagine the chaos— The clatter of hoofs, the jangling of harnesses, and the screaming of the horses, were as if swallowed by a vacuum, drowned out by the mighty voice of God. So loud it, quote, breaketh the cedars of Libanus. Psalm chapter 28, verse 5. The voice from heaven vibrated the air, the ground, the very rocks, and the blood in the men's veins, saying, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? And Saul answered, Who art thou, Lord? The voice replied, I am Jesus, whom thou dost persecute. Father Butler explains This mild expostulation of our Redeemer, accompanied with a powerful interior grace, cured Saul's pride, assuaged his rage, and wrought at once a total change in him. Wherefore, trembling and astonished, he cried out, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? our Lord ordered him to arise, and to proceed on his way to the city, where he should be informed of what was expected from him. Saul, arising from the ground, found that, though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was led by hand into Damascus, where he was lodged in the house of a Jew. To this house came by divine appointment a holy man named Ananias, who, laying his hands on Saul, said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to thee on thy journey, hath sent me, that thou mayest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he recovered his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. He stayed some days with the disciples at Damascus, and began immediately to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. Thus, a blasphemer and a persecutor was made an apostle, and chosen as one of God's principal instruments in the conversion of the world. We know that St. Paul made three great journeys in his lifetime that brought him to all the noted cities of Asia Minor and Southern Europe, and once he'd created Christian communities in these places, he devotedly kept track of them, sending countless letters to his mission flocks throughout the rest of his life. Fourteen of these letters, or epistles, are found in the New Testament. So, while he is not considered one of the official evangelists and never met Jesus on earth, he became one of the most important apostles. We read his letters of instruction to the early Christians many times throughout the liturgical year in the Mass. St. Paul was beheaded in Rome sometime around the year 66 AD, this form of execution being the rule for a Roman citizen. His relics rest in the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls near the Ostian Way in Rome. It's believed he was in his early sixties at the time of his death. Now, I wondered about St. Paul's final sentence after having been released from prison twice already. It's curious that he seemed to have been constantly on the run. What finally convicted him? And were Christians hated by the general populace or was it a governmental thing? It's a little hard to know for sure but I did some poking around to get a feel for the mood of the time when St. Paul was imprisoned. Have you ever heard that old saying, Nero fiddled while Rome burned? Well, there's no telling if this is factually true, but it was at least somewhat figuratively true, and has a bearing on the persecutions of the early church, specifically regarding the martyrdoms of both St. Peter and St. Paul. In July A.D. 64, a great fire broke out in Rome. Out of fourteen districts of the great city, ten were destroyed, and though the official reason was that it started accidentally in a warehouse, the general rumor among the Roman people, and it's believed to have been based in truth, was that Nero, who was known to have been mad, or at least one hundred percent morally bankrupt, had ordered the fire to be started, because he wanted to rebuild Rome to suit his aesthetic sensibilities. Whether this was true or not, we know the emperor didn't have much rapport, because the rumours that it was true started to become a problem. Nero and his minions had to come up with an alternate story, and they didn't have to look far for a scapegoat. It seems that the two districts that had been untouched by the fire were heavily Christian, and so the new but quickly growing religion, whose wholesome ways were already an affront to the worldly, became forthwith Roman enemy number one. First-century Roman historian Tacitus explained, All human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods, did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty of being Christians. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. End Eusebius, who is noted as the earliest compiler of the history of the church, continues the story and expounds upon the madness of Nero, quote, once the government of nero was firmly established he began to plunge into unholy pursuits and armed himself even against the religion of the god of the universe everyone may at his pleasure learn from them the coarseness of the man's extraordinary madness under the influence of which after he had accomplished the destruction of so many myriads without any reason he ran into such blood guiltiness That he did not spare even his nearest relatives and dearest friends but destroyed his mother and his brothers and his wife with very many others of his own family as he would private and public enemies with various kinds of deaths but with all these things this particular in the catalog of his crimes was still wanting that he was the first of the emperors who showed himself an enemy of the divine religion The Roman Tertullian is likewise a witness of this. He writes as follows. Examine your records. There you will find that Nero was the first that persecuted this doctrine, particularly then when, after subduing all the East, he exercised his cruelty against all at Rome. We glory in having such a man the leader in our punishment, for whoever knows him can understand that nothing was condemned by Nero unless it was something of great excellence. Thus, publicly announcing himself as the first among God's chief enemies, he was led on to the slaughter of the apostles. It is therefore recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself, and that Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. This account of Peter and Paul is substantiated by the fact that their names are preserved in the cemeteries of that place, even to the present day. It's hard to gauge how convinced the public were that Christians were the true enemy. I expect that, similar to our present time, anyone who was paying attention realized full well how corrupt their government was, and how off the spectrum was their leader. But there was little they could do about it, except perhaps to be grateful that they weren't the ones being persecuted, yet. Or those courageous and grace-filled Romans, who perhaps had personally known the goodness of Christians. Those Romans who, as Tertullian said, knew that anything Nero hated was probably most excellent, looked into this Christian religion that had been forced literally underground to the catacombs or out into the arena and martyrdom, and in spite of it all, or because of it all, converted. And many did. So St. Paul, in a nutshell had been at the very least imprisoned twice before his final incarceration the bible records that it was three times we know by reading the acts of the apostles that he stood trial before the roman governors felix and festus roughly around the year 60 and ended up in house arrest for two years it isn't known specifically why he was released but it wasn't long before he was imprisoned again following a preliminary hearing when he awaited a final trial It's likely that St. Paul knew he wouldn't be released this time around, and in those days one didn't go to prison to be punished so much as to await one's final mortal punishment. These were brutal times, especially for Christians. Not even the most stolid secular historians brush off this historic fact. Because he was a Roman citizen, St. Paul was not subject to the worst tortures or forms of execution, but most scholars believe he languished in the dreaded Mamertine prison for up to two years before his beheading. Not a luxurious hostelry. It's certain he suffered much during this imprisonment. It's possible that St. Peter was in the same prison at the same time, but it's generally held by the Church that they were not in fact executed at the same time. The feast today rightly finishes up the octave of the Prayers for Christian Unity, which began on the Feast of the Chair of Peter. Isn't the Church profound in this perfect poetry of history and meaning? Last week, on the 18th, the Liturgy of the Church began the octave by recalling the earliest history of the Church in Rome, proving the fact of Peter's primacy in the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And today ends the octave commemorating the miraculous conversion of one of the most unlikely of candidates a cheerleader for the opposition a hater of christianity and a bystander at the first martyrdom if you'd asked saul on december 26th if he'd ever in a million years imagine he'd become the paul we now know he'd have called you crazy and yet he became not only an apostle but one of the great evangelizers of the early church known particularly for being the apostle to the gentiles So, who, then, were Gentiles? Basically, a Gentile was anyone who was not Jewish. St. Paul, a Roman citizen, though raised Jewish, was well acquainted with pagans, their practices, and beliefs, and by the will of God made this huge segment of the world's population his particular mission. It's strange to consider that this was a controversial thing to do, but in St. Paul's time, most early Christians came from Jesus' own Judaic community. Jewish converts, who were the majority in those days, had no context outside their own world. History shows this mindset didn't last long, but clearly St. Paul, of all the Apostles, would understand the challenge of converting oneself or others to the true faith, to the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church, in its original and entire perfection, when it seems the whole world is against it. St. Paul, like us and every generation between his time and ours, had to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the effects of widespread bad influences on the road to the true church himself and in leading others. We know from his epistles how St. Paul encouraged the faithful in the virtues and in living a life in communion with the teachings of Jesus, and how part of putting on the new man, which phrase you'll remember from Ephesians chapter 4, was DISPOSING OF THE OLD MAN In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, we see St. Paul's wisdom in action when his Christian converts in Ephesus burned their pagan scrolls so that the truth couldn't be polluted by them. And so they got rid of the old man, the old ways, even when it cost them friends and family and their stations in life, even when it hurt them financially. The scrolls themselves, for instance, were very expensive. But isn't this an encouragement? Whether we're new to the faith or cradle Catholics, most of us have traveled the road to Damascus in one way or another, and are still traveling it. Removing the scales from our eyes is an ongoing process, if about nothing else but the state of our own souls. I know I wake up to new understandings constantly and have to rearrange my brain and my habits to be in line with truth and goodness. We know from the conversion of St. Paul that even what seems like a sudden conversion doesn't happen overnight. St. Paul had to walk a God-directed walk and meet up with the right people and obtain the right blessings before he could begin to see his journey in earnest. There was a lot of just plain Paul between Saul and St. Paul. It's the same with all of us. Not just converts. Every day is a new beginning. And I'd like to add, inspired by Holly and Mandy's talks on their What is a Woman podcast on this station, that as we recommit every day, we really do need to judge by God's standards the media we are absorbing and the time that goes into it. These are our scrolls. If we're going to commit as completely as St. Paul and the Ephesians, We have to throw the garbage, the heresy, and the immorality, found more and less blatantly in books, programs, and movies, and in apps and platforms rife with temptation, all of it, into the fire, so to speak, anyway, jettison it, no excuses, and replace it with what is true and good, beautiful and useful and real. Every day we have to recommit and reconvert with the help of God." Through the intercession of the blessed mother and all the saints we can do it saint paul patron of theologians writers evangelists and conversions pray for us and for our loved ones all of whom might or might not need to be knocked off our horses to see the light Following is the prayer to St. Paul, number 488 in the Recolta, which proceeds from Pope St. Pius X and is accompanied with an indulgence of 300 days, once a day, under the usual conditions. Pope St. Pius X's exhortation and appeal for the intercession of St. Paul is more necessary in our time than ever. He knew who to call upon in this particular need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. O most glorious Apostle Paul, who didst labor with so much zeal at Ephesus to destroy the writings which thou knewest full well would pervert the minds of the faithful, deign in these times to turn upon us thy loving regard. Thou seest how an unbelieving and unbridled press endeavors to steal from man's heart its precious treasures of faith and moral purity we beseech thee o great apostle to enlighten the minds of all these perverse writers that at length they may cease from injuring souls by their wicked doctrines and perfidious suggestions move their hearts to renounce the evil which they do to the chosen sheep of christ's fold obtain for us the grace that being always obedient to the voice of the supreme pastor we may never give ourselves up to the reading of evil books but may on the contrary seek to read and as far as possible diffuse such works as may by their wholesome influence help all to promote the greater glory of god the exaltation of the church and the salvation of souls amen Blessed be God in his angels and in his saints.